People want more democracy, not less. It's time to talk progressive politics and practical solutions with Joy Silver. Outspoken from Radio 111. Now, here's Joy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show Outspoken. Today, we are going on the series that I'm calling No One but no one is above the law, and I am really excited to have Will Rollins, the Democratic candidate for Congressional District 41, with us today. How are you, Will? I'm great, Joy. How are you? I'm doing really good. Will is a former federal prosecutor who focused on counterterrorism and counterintelligence cases in Southern California. After attending Dartmouth and Columbia Law School, Will clerked for two federal judges in California and began tackling injustice as an assistant U.S. attorney, where he prosecuted QAnon, I repeat, QAnon-inspired terrorism, and some of the insurrectionists who attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. So, Will, what is it that made you decide to run for Congressional District 41? So I think it was seeing the image of handguns drawn on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives, seeing 140 police officers injured, five later died as a result of the attack, and then having a representative, Ken Calvert, vote to decertify the election the day after that attack and thinking about the fact that there were officers who ultimately gave their lives to protect the members of Congress inside that building trying to do their jobs and have the the peaceful transfer of power take place and then to have someone dishonor those sacrifices and dishonor the country and their oaths of office by voting against our democracy the following day uh, is what galvanized me to get into this race and challenge Ken Calvert. But you've been doing this kind of work for a while, isn't that right? I mean, tell me a little bit about your background that gave you the uh, the focus on this. And, um, well, you were right in there doing the work. So tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I... Um, I had always wanted to work in national security going all the way back to September 11th when I was a junior in high school and saw the North Tower of the World Trade Center collapse and people leaping to their deaths from the building God. and um, fellow, fellow Americans um, covered in ash. And that was a really powerful experience as, as a teenager, as it was for all of us. And, you know, seeing that and wanting to join the military, but being a closeted gay kid who was uh, too scared to be outed and um, enlist, I knew I had to find a different path to service. So it took me a long time to get there, but eventually got hired as a a federal prosecutor um, in the Central District of California, which covers about 20 million people, including everyone in Riverside County, and finally got to do what I'd always wanted to do, which was help protect the country. And um, it was great to be part of the team that helps protect the United States from adversaries like Russia, Uh, China, Iran, ISIS, but um, I was hired just before the presidential election in 2016. Um, And when the election happened, what we noticed um, afterwards in the last several years was a huge rise in the threats from domestic extremism. So whether it was the folks who attacked Charlottesville, those neo-Nazis who um, went to the Unite the Right rally, um, whether it was other anti-Semitic, anti-Asian hate crimes that developed in the last couple of years, whether it was QAnon conspiracy theorists who believed that COVID was part of a government conspiracy and that they 
needed to attack U.S. Navy hospital ships because uh, the pandemic wasn't real and it was manufactured by the government. And then, of course, culminating in the attack on the U.S. Capitol on on January 6th. And so it was really that shift in extremism and the, the nature of the threats that the country is facing that I think uh, inspired me to get into this race, because I think the rule of law uh, and the idea that no one is above the law is something that all Americans uh, believe in, including my own family, which is split between Republicans and Democrats. But I think it's time for us to recenter the country in a way where we put the focus on institutions instead of any one individual politician. Mm, You know, that's an interesting thing. There's so many things in what you said, and I want to pull it apart a little bit because uh, you really sing the song the way I would sing it. uh, And that's why I appreciate you jumping in this race. Will, you know that we have talked about that. And I think um, many, many issues are important to the American public. And certainly we've seen what happened in health care and climate crisis being two of those. But if you can't vote and you're concerned about militias taking over the country and you're looking at uh, domestic terrorism, then I think uh, we have a larger problem that would that problem stands in the way of ever solving any other issue that we have and that we're facing as the American public. Completely agree. And I think that, you know, the Capitol attack was a 911 call. And, and I think that answering that call is our collective responsibility as Americans, regardless of political party at this moment. I think if we care about what we have inherited, the sacrifices that our ancestors made to give us the country that we have to get today, we've got to step up to the plate with some specific proposals to fight back against the extremism that we're seeing develop in the far right um, branch of the Republican Party. And that is a huge threat to the country. And I think that it's one that most Americans uh, don't don't want to be a part of. Most mm-hmm. Americans don't want to see those images from January 6th again. Most Americans want leaders who are going to step up with plans for our future, with plans to end that kind of division, which not only weakens us at home, but also weakens us overseas. And uh, folks like Vladimir Putin would, would love nothing more to see a weakened and divided America. And it's our collective responsibility to stop that from happening. Well, that's interesting, because you, you must be reading my mind, because my next question was to ask you what can be done about the situation where U.S. elected re- representatives appear to be in violation of the Constitution, and because much of the public sees them as having taken treasonous action. And what I mean by treason, and I mean specifically the word and the, you know, the concept of treason, is taking action in alliance with foreign powers. You stepped in in 2016. So what would you, as an elected representative, what are those specific proposals? What can we do? What can elected representatives do in this country? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing that all, all of us as just citizens need to do this midterm is vote out the people who enabled the attack on the U.S. Capitol. That is the urgent call to action, um, because as you just said, those members of the House who did that violated their oaths of office. That's right. And at a a fundamental level, they are willing to substitute their own judgment for who should be president of the United States for the judgment of voters in their own district. Mm -hmm. You know, almost half of us in the old congressional district voted for Joe Biden. 
And what Representative Calvert did when he voted to decertify is he said his idea of who should be the president mattered more than everybody else in the district who counted, who voted the other way. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think at a fundamental level, that's what we've got to stop this midterm cycle. And then we've got to put people in office who have specific plans to end the toxic divisions that are ripping the country apart. And that means updating our broken information system that has created a a climate in which extremists, big tech, media corporations are profiting by the spread of that division and disinformation and making it impossible for the country to agree on basic facts so that our democracy can function because well, well hold in- on hold on there will because that is the area that is very very dear to my heart as far as how we stop this so i want you to get into that a little bit more on how do we do that with media and disinformation yeah and i think you know for me i i've been inspired by what the united states did when it responded to fascism in World War II, before and after World War II, because what America saw happen in Italy, what America saw happen in Germany with the rise of Nazi propaganda, the United States knew that that was a threat to free and fair democracies everywhere. And so our country and our leaders, and it was had broad bipartisan support, and the FCC developed a fairness doctrine that was designed to prevent any one side of propaganda from obtaining too much power in the media marketplace. It was designed to create a democracy of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that you see multiple views on issues of public importance. And that doctrine enabled the United States to defeat fascism. It enabled us to agree that the polio vaccine did not have microchips in it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it enabled us to agree that the moon landing wasn't fake Mm -hmm. and it enabled us to win the cold war and unfortunately what happened in 1987 uh, during the reagan administration that doctrine was repealed and over the last 40 years or so we have seen a huge rise in the amount of one-sided propagandist information that's being filtered directly to our brains and with the dot-com boom that has gone on to include algorithms that um, spread disinformation at alarming rates. And so I think we need leaders to step up with some specific plans to address the root causes of that broken information system, because I think that's what's preventing us from getting the big issues that our generation really need to confront done. I think, you know, so when you're talking about um, broadcast uh, or um, social media, that's um, that's an important thing for sure, and I, I think zeroing back into the fairness doctrine is critical. I've always felt that the only way uh, we would be able to solve this, m- many people don't really see that. I mean, they don't realize that if we're all not affirming facts together, that it's impossible to move forward. Because Even if you have a different interpretation of the facts, we're still dealing with the same facts. We don't have to have the same solutions. We might have not have the same point of view as where the analysis would go, but the facts are the facts. And so there's an issue there. I mean, remember the term yellow journalism? 
Yes. And so yellow journalism meant what? Unconfirmed sourcing of information. And this was uh, and points of view that really had no substance to it. And yet we, we don't talk about things like that. I mean, if we look back to Birth of a Nation, when the KKK and D.W. Griffin's movie came out, this was the Facebook of its time because they didn't really have film and film served to inform people at that point in time. And so I think the, the gradual movement up until we had to assess how Mussolini and Hitler came to power during World War II, that was the moment we assessed how did they gain power in the population. So those, that fairness doctrine was created as a tool to be able to bring us together and assure that we were all working from the same set of facts. What would you propose as the elected representative to how would you move forward on that particular issue? So there are a couple things I'd want to do. One, I think the FCC for the purposes of broadcast TV and radio could create a modern version of the doctrine. And that doctrine would not prohibit anybody from saying whatever it is that they want to say. Of course, you can't do that in the United States. We've got to have the freedom to say pretty much whatever you want to say, but it would provide time and space for a response the way that we used to do after World War II. Mm -hmm. And so that would enable folks to come on air, um, offer uh, a view on an issue of public importance, but the FCC would have a role and the public would have a role in a right to an alternative view and multiple views on an issue of public uh, public, uh, importance. And the way that the FCC enforced that in the past was through fines and the Supreme Court upheld that doctrine in a famous decision called uh, Red Lion. Mm -hmm. And so I think a modernized version of that uh, for broadcast and radio um, would be something that is doable and that there's consensus, I think, um, across both parties on because whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you may have a different idea about who's to blame for disinformation, but um, you certainly agree that the divisiveness and the media infrastructure, the way that it's currently set up, is not working for the American people as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think that that's something where we have an opportunity in broadcast and radio to do something. And I think to your point about the rise of social media, too, that's another huge area where we don't have enough leaders talking about how do we address the algorithms that are being designed by trillion dollar market cap companies to create clickbait and division for ad revenue. And I think one issue that has gotten some attention and that I would want to propose if elected is a reform to section 230 of the communications decency act, which Mm. um, as you may know, provides uh, immunity for those big tech companies, regardless of the content that's posted on their websites. And, So I think this was a good law initially when the dot-com boom took off because we wanted to encourage innovation. We wanted these companies to develop. They created a huge amount of um, jobs and and high-paying jobs in the United States and obviously have had enormous um, success, and we should be on the forefront of innovation. But but what I think nobody fully anticipated was how those companies would end up having such powerful profit motives driven by – um, hate-filled quick bait. 
And that's what the software has begun to turn into. And so I think some proposals to amend that law, for example, saying people can still post whatever they want on the Internet, but if a tech company's software pushes disinformation that causes harm to consumers, Mm -hmm. if the the company's software pushes that to your brain, then they've got liability just the way any other business would if they sold you something fake or if they misled you with their advertising. Isn't that that fraud? I mean, doesn't that come under uh, fraud? It it does. In a way? It it absolutely does. And the the problem is no one can sue them for that right Mm -hmm. now because of Section 230. Mm -hmm. And so... Because they have that blanket immunity for content, um, we've we've gotten to a place now where, as we saw after the 2020 election, there are videos going viral of uh, purported election fraud that turn out to be manufactured or fake or, you know, just completely um, invented by folks who wanted to claim that. Donald Trump actually won the election. And, and because there there's no ability to bring suit against the algorithms or the people who are creating the algorithms that spread that like wildfire to hundreds of millions of, Ameri- of Americans, uh, we're left with a system that unfortunately um, creates mass widespread loss of faith in the outcome of an election in the United States. And there's no accountability for it. And so I think people on both sides of the aisle agree that there needs to be accountability and that there needs to be public role as opposed to just a handful of tech billionaires or media billionaires, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or Rupert Murdoch, Mm -hmm. people on both sides of the aisle should agree that we don't want one or two billionaires or five corporations dictating everything that is spoon fed to us um, online on TV and on the radio, the public has a right to be informed by fact uh, instead of fiction. Right. Well, it could be information is an asset. And so if these four or five people are are in charge of the assets and the rest of the public has no say in what happens with those assets or how they should be treated, um, that's a that's a big issue. A big issue. I, I want to talk a little bit and get your thoughts on this, Will, because this is something we haven't really spoken about uh, and that is um, the first uh, the First Amendment freedom free speech because when you said that if it's harming the public, I mean the concept, and this is what I remember growing up with. Um, although we have freedom of speech in this country, uh, you still can't yell fire in a theater if there's no fire, right? right. So there's a there's a there's an identifiable. Um, harm done by that. So, but I think that has long since that train has long since left the station uh, in terms of harming the public. So, what are some of your thoughts about where we are with our understanding of what the First Amendment is all about? You're right, and there there are some limitations on it when it comes to false advertising or fraud or yelling fire in a crowded theater, and, and those are. Those are good limitations, right? Because the speech is causes imminent harm. It tricks people into buying consumer products. It can cause death in the event of medical products that are sold, you know, and marketed falsely. And so the, the, the advantage of amending Section 230 in the way that I think most Americans would agree it needs to be changed is that there is accountability based on current First Amendment jurisprudence for that kind of false information. And 
when you can enable someone who sees a fake medical advertisement as a result of an algorithm designed by Facebook to generate billions of dollars in revenue that causes somebody to take a product that um, kills them because it was negligently or falsely marketed. Mm -hmm. It's not just the marketer who should be subject to liability. It's also the person who, who sold them the message in the first place. And so that's where I think that carve out for Section 230 immunity is really important. And then I think the, the broader point about information and in a democracy, how does news, how do we, how do we quantify the harm to receiving fake information about our democracy and the rule of law and our elections? And that's where the public, the people of the United States have to have a role. And the way we have that role is through our elected officials and our government to step up and be be at the table with these corporations and tech companies that are responsible for pushing the information out to us. And that's what the FCC did post-World War II. And so when there was an issue of public importance, and if major broadcasters um, did not provide multiple views on issues of public importance, then the FCC and the American people had a voice. They were able to say to those broadcasters, that's not acceptable. There's going to be the imposition of fines. You're going to be required to issue a correction or you'll be subject to fines uh, because we didn't want what happened in Italy and Germany to happen here in the United States. And so I think the main thing that I want to do is ensure that the people of the United States have a voice in the information that's being fed to us, because right now we do not have any control over what a handful of billionaires and corporations choose to spoon feed us um, in the news market, and that's got to change. Well, hold on there with that thought about voice. Um, this is Joy Silver on Outspoken and a podcast here on Radio 111. Will, we're going to talk more about having a voice. Our podcast today is made possible by the generous support of My Little Flower Shop in Palm Springs. They are the premier full-service floral and event design studio in our beautiful desert cities. The staff has more than 50 years of experience designing, planning, and executing one-of-a-kind, high-profile social, corporate, and charity benefit special events. That experience includes the Academy Awards and presidential inaugurations. So whether you are planning a wedding, a birthday, showers, or anniversary parties, or you're organizing a big banquet, My Little Flower Shop uses only the finest flowers and will help you celebrate in style. Everyday arrangements, wedding bouquets, centerpieces, and amazing unique designs. Call My Little Flower Shop. Open daily, 9 to 5. The phone number is 760-778-7111. That's 760-778-7111. And visit them online for visual inspiration, mylittleflowershop.com at 861 North Palm Canyon in Palm Springs. They're open for delivery and an official sponsor of Outspoken. We're here with Will Rollins, Democratic candidate for Congressional District 41. And, well, we were talking about having a voice. And anybody who knows me and has heard some of my uh, rantings and ravings, um, she has a voice and she's going to use it. So I'm very interested in talking about how do the people get a voice. But I think more specifically, Will, who are the people? 
because I think there are those who are on the extreme side thinking that their voice is not being heard. And this is part of the polarization that we're hearing right now. So how do we determine who are we the people? Yeah, that's a great, I mean, that's a great question. And it's, I think it comes down to the idea at a fundamental level that any set of laws that encourages more speech and more debate um, is good. And we don't want something that restricts it to one point of view, because the reality is that if we get stuck with one point of view, whether it's fed through the internet or TV or radio, we're left with uh, without the ability to make logical judgments about who's got the better idea for whatever the subject matter is. And so I think as a government, it's not the government's role to say whose idea is better, but it is the, the public's role and the public's right to have a multiple, uh, multiple views presented on issues of public importance so that we can make informed choices to govern our democracy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way that we balance the First Amendment right to say whatever you want, but to allow for time and space for a response to recenter the United States um, in a way that makes accomplishing and compromise at a systemic level possible instead of the systemic division, which cognitive psychologists and marketing experts will tell you is the way to make money but to break a democracy. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to fight against that economic structure to re-energize genuine democratic debate about policy ideas instead of fear, division, and hate that sells. Mm -hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, I want to get back to your campaign right now because we're talking about uh, California Congressional District 41. Um, let's just talk a little bit about that. What does the Congressional District 41, which is a re has been redistricted, what is it inclusive of now? And, and how does that differ for Ken Calvert, who has been the reigning representative of the 41st? Sure. So uh, Representative Calvert had a district before, which was called California 42, <clears throat> excuse me, where he had a nine-point registration advantage at a minimum for Republicans. And then given the redistricting that just happened uh, in 2022 that was finalized uh, in January, um, it's now called California 41. Registration for Democrats uh, shifted at least seven to nine points. And so if you look at the latest figures from the Riverside County Registrar, dem registered Democrats and registered Republicans are separated by 838 registered voters My overall. Gosh, that's something. That's like nothing. Uh, <laughs> right. It's it's a, a basically a 50-50 split in registration with 90,000 no party preference voters in the new 41. So this is going to be one of the uh, toss-up elections in this midterm and an ability for uh, Democrats to unseat a Republican who's been in the House since 1992. What do you think are the weakest, um, or where where is uh, where are the challenges for Calvert in this race, from your point of view? So, Calvert has had a thirty-year career of voting against issues that matter to people like me, who who grew up as a gay teenager, closeted, who wanted to serve in the military but couldn't because of laws like "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" and the fear of being outed. So, Congressman Calvert voted against repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. He voted to amend the Constitution to ban gay marriage. He voted 
to um, ban gay adoptions in D.C. He voted against uh, the Equality Act, which would have prevented employers from firing people for being gay. And now the new district has Palm Springs, Rancho Mirage, Palm Desert, La Quinta, Uh, And all of those cities voted for Joe Biden in 2020. And all of those cities disagree with the idea that people should be fired from their jobs for being gay. And I think that Congressman Calvert, uh, that ideology is not going to resonate with the full third of the electorate Mm -hmm. that um, is now going to be facing him for the first time in this midterm. And it's, it's not just LGBTQ rights that he's backwards on. I mean, this is somebody who voted against codifying Roe versus Wade as federal law. And if the Supreme Court does what, uh, unfortunately, a lot of experts predict they will do this summer and curbs that right to abortion in the United States, I don't think most of the voters in California 41 are going to support Ken Calvert's idea of government mandated pregnancies for all women in the United States. Mm-hmm. That is abhorrent to everybody in the new district, I think. And, and I think uh, he's going to have a lot of trouble explaining how that's going to work. What are your what do you what is your pathway to victory? I know there are other Democratic candidates in this race. So how do you differentiate yourself uh, from the other Democrats that are running for the same position right now? I think that this is an urgent moment for the United States and that most voters want people who have a track record of fighting to protect this country regardless of political party. And that's something that I've spent my career doing. I worked in justice departments that were of presidential administrations of both parties. I clerked for a federal judge appointed by George W. Bush. I clerked for a federal judge appointed by President Obama. Um, And I've got an ability to fight against domestic extremism, which to me is the most urgent threat that the United States faces. And so I think that talking to most of the folks in this uh, district, they want somebody who has the experience and skill set, folks like Val Demings or Mm -hmm. Adam Schiff, who have been so valuable to our country these past several years in standing up against the far-right radicalism that is taking the country off the rails. And people really want a leader who knows how to fight against that kind of extremism this cycle and to deliver for people who actually live in Riverside County on issues like infrastructure, you know, whether it's the 15 corridor in Corona that Congressman Calvert voted against funding as part of the infrastructure bill, whether it's uh, Bundy Road in Menifee that, again, Congressman Calvert voted against funding as part of the infrastructure bill, whether it's Coachella Valley Rail, which, again, (laughs) Congressman Calvert voted against funding as part of the infrastructure bill. All of these things matter to people who actually live in Riverside County. And when our wages are stagnating and the ultra, ultra top 1.0111 percent of Americans are getting more money in their pockets during the last two years of covid, while the rest of us are seeing sky high prices from inflation and uh, unfortunately a massive decline in our take-home pay, the solution to that is not electing people like Congressman Calvert who want to put more money into the pockets of real estate billionaires 
than the working families who actually live in this district. And I think that's going to matter to voters uh, in June and in November. Well, I think there's a an issue that I'd like to hear a little bit if you're comfortable, or maybe if you're uncomfortable even, I'd like to hear about it. And that would be a big issue for people, certainly in this part of the valley, and that would be that of the Salton Sea, which was an originally an, an Army Corps of Engineers mistake in the first place. So how would you potentially bring your power as a representative in Congress to bring some more resources into the area for the solution to that issue. So first, I think we should give credit to uh, Congressman Ruiz for proposing $250 million in federal spending as part of Build Back Better to address the Salton Sea. Um, I think that was a step in the right direction. And, you know, that's somebody where we need another vote in Congress to get the resources that it's going to take to address what could be one of the worst natural disasters in the history of California. Um, so I think we've got to, got to follow through with that kind of federal funding, which I think is just a start, unfortunately, to what we're actually going to need to get the job done. And so to my mind, this is uh, a problem that's going to require a public private partnership to solve. And I'll be candid about admitting that, you know, if you're a good leader, you, you know how to listen to experts who have studied this and who have come up with ideas on addressing not just the environmental consequences that we're seeing as a result of what's happening in the Salton Sea, but also the ability to grow our economy while also protecting the planet at the same time. And so there have been a lot of interesting ideas proposed around the Salton Sea, but the bottom line, I think, from a federal government perspective, is that it's going to require a lot of money to address those environmental impact issues while also trying to make sure that we can create new jobs and grow our economy in a way that makes sense with the environmental impact. Well, that's um, that's a very critical thing, and I know there'll be many other discussions on that particular issue. Um, uh, you have support. You have endorsements uh, that you might want to talk about for this. Uh, we're going to wrap up here soon. Yeah, I've been you know incredibly proud to get the support of a lot of local elected uh, officials across California 41. So um, Mayor Lisa Middleton of Palm Springs, Mayor Tim Sheridan of Lake Elsinore, Council Members Christy Holstage and Jeff Coors. Um, Councilmember Karina Quintanilla of Palm Desert, um, Evan Wolfson of Freedom to Marry. I'm the only Democratic candidate in this race who's been endorsed by any city members of the House, Congressman uh, Mike Levin and Brad Sherman, and then some really incredible national LGBTQ organizations like Victory Fund, Equality PAC, uh, Equality California, and just gotten a ton of momentum. Really proud to have set the all-time quarterly fundraising record for any Democrat against Ken Calvert going back to 1992. And, you know, um, the unfortunate reality is that fundraising matters uh, in order to beat people like Calvert, who have gotten more money from the NRA than anybody else in California, but really proud to have been able to um, get a huge start on doing that. And I know that I'll, I'll be able to do what it takes to get him beaten in November. And I, I look forward to bringing change to Riverside County. Well, where can they find you? Uh, where can they find you and, and more about you and how do they donate? Where is that web page? It is willrollinsforcongress.com and that's R-O-L-L-I-N-S. Thank you so much and thank you for talking with us today. That was Will Rollins, Democratic candidate for Congressional District 41. No one is above the law and this has been Joy Silver on Outspoken. Outspoken.